Today we have environmentalist Silesh Rao. He's working as hard as he can to prevent the human race from going extinct. He's founded a non-profit called Climate Healers. He's co-produced four documentaries, two of which ended up on Netflix, called What the Health and Cowspiracy. He produced Cowspiracy along with Leonardo DiCaprio. His goal is to build a vegan world by the year 2026. Some of you may not agree with all of the things he says, but I urge you to keep an open mind. Let's go meet Silesh. So welcome, Salish. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so can you tell us why you started Climate Healers to start with? Well, I was an engineer. I'm an engineer. And I was working on 10 gigabit Ethernet back in 2005. And I came home one day and I happened to see Al Gore's presentation on TV. Yeah. And I was rooted to it. I was shocked. Said to myself, if half of what he's saying is true, I'm wasting my time. So I asked my wife, you know, can I study this and figure out if this, what he's saying is true or not? And she said, go for it. So I did that and I realized quickly that it's far worse. So then uh, we closed our company and I started focusing on this full time. Very cool. And I wrote to Mr. Gore, I got trained by him uh, in the second batch of people that he trained. Wow. And, uh, and then after that, I gave his presentation for a year. Um, and then decided I needed to do something on my own. So that's when I started Climate Healers. What kind of training did you go through with Al Gore? Basically trained to give his presentation. Um, but at that time also I questioned some of the things that he was doing because I knew that it was far worse. So I asked him about uh, animal agriculture and um, he basically turned to Roy Neal, his chief of staff, and said, how did this guy get in here? You know? So <laughs> was, I was clear at that time that there, that was something he didn't want to talk about. Because of some rooted interest in, in industry, is that why? I think fundamentally, um, Al Gore is trying to preserve civilization as we know it. Okay. So which means he's trying to preserve the current hierarchical setup and you know the privileges of the elites and all these things. And he's, um, he's trying to preserve that. And that's why he doesn't want to talk about the foundations of this problem, which is really, you know, our violence towards nature. And for your uh, documentary of Cowspiracy, you actually co-produced that with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, so how did that come about? How did he get involved with the project? Well, actually it was co-produced I mean, by Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn and Leonardo DiCaprio and I and several others are executive producers. Uh -huh. So which is actually a smaller role in the sense that um, Producers have to find the people who have to interview and all that, and that's what these Kip and Keegan did. What Leonardo DiCaprio did was to get us on uh, Netflix. Wow. And um, so he, he saw the movie and he wanted um, to put it on Netflix. So his team then went through the movie, looked at, looked at all the facts, and they vetted them. Yeah. And in that process, I got involved uh, with Keegan and Kip to defend what we would, what he had already said in the movie. Okay. So the movie came out in 2014. It got on Netflix in late 2015 or early 2016, okay. around that time. So it took us a year and a half to really go through the vetting process. And there's even been uh, quotes from the director of Black Swan who said that of Cowspiracy that it's a documentary that will rock and inspire the environmental movement. So that's one that really got big, it, so it sounds like, even in the Hollywood space. Yeah, it's, in fact, if you ask uh, vegans, what made you go vegan? Yeah. The number one reason is they watched a documentary. Okay. 
And of the documentaries, uh, Cowspiracy and What the Health accounted for about 50% of the people who went oh, vegan. Wow. No, that's an amazing initiative that after 20 years in tech that you saw the problem and took action on it. Uh, most people will not do that. Uh, when I started studying all this and I, you know, I was getting more and more depressed about how bad things were, and then I always thought, who am I to start working on solutions like this, right? I mean, do, do, do I really have all the tools to do this? Maybe someone else should do it. Someone else should do it. So I've been mean, looking for others to do it. And it turns out that in a group, uh, observing the suffering of others, okay, people don't really step forward, take yeah. action. Bystander effect. Bystander effect, right? But it turns out that the bystander effect is, is ameliorated if the suffering person looks at one person in the group and says, can you help me out? Yeah. Okay? And that's what my granddaughter did to me. She said, you, can you make sure that no animals are killed by 2026? And she's suffering, okay? Because she's suffering when someone eats in front of her, she suffers because she sees her family being eaten. So she's saying, can you help me out? And so I had to step forward. It turns out the bystander effect, you know, 80% of the people would step forward and help with the, if the person who's suffering looks at that person and says, can you help me out? That's what happened to me, you know, and so now I'm saying, okay, I, I'm it. I'm going to at least start it off and see, let's work on it, get people involved, you know, see if we can come up with a system of normalized nonviolence. And I think you mentioned there was a uh, powerful fable in this book. Uh, is that something you wanted to tell the viewers about? Oh yes, you see, uh, we, have been, we have been trained to think that we are separate from nature. So I had that, you know. In fact, I was in this uh, sanctuary in the Western Ghats of India, and I felt perfection. Everything was perfect. Every animal, every insect was playing its part, right? And the whole ecosystem was, it was so full of life that at night I could not even hear my sister talk. There's such a loud din of insects all around me. So I asked the owners who were like a couple from New Jersey came and did this. I asked them, how did you do it? They said, oh, we just tore down the fences and let the animals come and do their thing. We didn't have to do anything, you know, besides planting a few trees to begin with. And they said, um, the animals came and dropped their seeds and new trees were born. You know? They said, but one thing we had to do was to patrol the land and make sure that no human being comes inside. And at that, felt, at that time, I felt like, you know, I don't belong in, in nature. And I don't belong in my own birthplace because I was born in that forest, just 200 miles from where this sanctuary was. So that's the story of separation we have told ourselves, that we don't belong in nature. We are out of nature, right? We got kicked out of Eden. So then I found that there is a story in our, in, in our Hindu tradition, in our ancient Indian tradition, uh, that mimics the same story of the knowledge tree in the Bible, but it's a different story. And that story helped me understand the story in the Bible and make sense of all this, right? So that story um, begins with children. So the children play the role of Adam and Eve, and there's a rich uncle who plays the role of the serpent, okay? So the children are playing with sticks and stones and rag dolls on the floor of their hut in the middle of the forest. And their uncle comes to visit them. And the uncle says, hey, why are you playing with these trifles when the cosmic fig tree is right outside your hut? So it's an upside down tree with its fruits on the ground, its roots in the sky. And all you have to do is go under the tree and wish for anything you want and it'll give it to you. 
It's a wishing tree. Children don't believe him. How can there be an upside-down tree that you wish and you give it to you? So they wait until the uncle leaves and then they rush to the tree and they start wishing. They wish for sweets and they get them. And they gorge on the sweets and they get stomachache. They wish for toys and they get them. And they play with the toys and they get bored. They wish for fancier toys. That leads to greater boredom. There was something about this tree that they did not, that they did not understand. It grants you what you wish for and along with it comes the exact opposite. Because that's how the universe is built, of dualities. Okay. Okay? Children didn't know that. All they knew is that they couldn't stop wishing under the tree. And the more they wished, the more miserable they were. Okay? Then they get to be young men and women. And now they're wishing for what young men and women wish for. The four main fruits of the tree were sex, fame, money and power. And with each comes its opposite. And the result was more misery and suffering for the young men and women. Then they get to be old men and women. Okay? And they congregate under the tree in three different groups. The first group says, You know, we were so happy when we didn't know about this tree. It has all been a hoax and a farce. And the story says they were fools, for they hadn't understood the tree. The second group was even more foolish. For they come under the tree and they say, You know, if we could go back and wish for different things, I'm sure we would have been a lot happier. So they were bigger fools than the first. And the third group was the most foolish of the lot. For they come under the tree and they say, we are so miserable, we wish we were dead. And the tree grants them the wish, because it's a wishing tree. And they're immediately reborn on, underneath the same tree. Because the tree always grants wishes in dualities. That's how they introduced the concept of reincarnation, by the way. <laughs> okay. So the, tree, the story doesn't stop there. Then it talks about this lame child who also wanted to go out and wish for a good leg so that he could walk. But there was such a crowd of people under the tree, they pushed him away. He couldn't even get to the tree. So he stood there and he watched and he saw how the tree was making everybody miserable. The people who were wishing were miserable, people who were trying to get to the tree were miserable, all the animals were suffering because of all the wishing. And then he had this brilliant flash of insight. He understood the tree. No one else understood. He understood the tree. And he began to see the brilliant cosmic spindle that was being performed under the tree. And he began to feel this well of compassion come from within him for all the suffering that was happening. And he lost the desire to wish. He became detached from the tree. And he was the happiest of the lot. So that's where the story ends. Then we have the Upanishads where they teach you what they told you in the Vedas, right? And in the Upanishads, in the Shweta Shvatara Upanishad, they say that that wishing child and the watching child are inside each one of us. That's our duality. And it's up to us to enable one over the other. That makes it seem like if you want to be happy, you have to become a watching child. You have to get in touch with your watching child. That's the purpose of every meditation technique, by the way, is to help us to get in touch with our watching child and observe our own wishing child. So that question then comes up in the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna goes to Krishna and he says, Why should I wish under the tree? Why should I fight this battle? You know, you take care of it yourself. You're God, right? You do it yourself. And Krishna says, How do you think I do it? Through you. So <laughs> get back in there and fight, right? Get back in there and wish under the tree. And then he taught him how to wish. He said, Those people were miserable because they were wishing for themselves. If you go under the tree and you wish for, a be for the benefit of everyone else, and you say, I don't want anything from this tree for myself, 
I'm detached, you know, not attached to the outcome of my wishing. Then you'll be perfectly happy wishing under the tree and everybody will be happy because of your wishing. So selflessness is the highest form of selfishness. So as the species that has access to this wishing tree, we have a duty to wish for the benefit of every other species and say we don't want anything from this tree for ourselves. That's not what we've been doing so far. That's what we have to start doing now, consciously. But so far, we've been doing it unconsciously because even though we're wishing for ourselves, we were uh, subconsciously creating the thermostat for the planet. <laughs> we didn't even know that's what we were doing, but we were wishing for ourselves <laughs> and we created the thermostat for the planet because you see, nature is perfect. So even though something seems destructive, it is constructive at another level. That's an incredible story. It's a beautiful story, yeah. It helped me understand the wishing tree, the knowledge tree story in the Bible. Because in the Bible, Adam and Eve got kicked out because they took the tree, the fruit, and they ate it themselves. They, they had given that fruit to, another, to the serpent or to someone else. They probably would have stayed in Eden. You know? That's the moral of this wishing tree story. My vision is to have a vegan world by 2026 in seven years. We will have a complete system of normalized non-violence in place that we can all tap into and uh, contribute. And we are writing an app so that people can work on this from around the world. This is like using the internet to make the same process that we use for creating the internet work for a vegan world by 2026.